The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. Trending love. You know, the Valentine's season, it's full of sweets like chocolates. I thought I would bring one. Woo! I'm going to hit somebody who's not paying attention. You know, when I walk up, like, you should be, I, I want to talk to you. And so, <laughs> Here, somebody else, you're going to pay attention. Here you go. Ready? Woo! Chocolates for everyone. Um, no, here's the deal. I wish I could get it through the online canvas. Like, that would be really cool. And then you guys like that? Like, suddenly, like, chocolate just spilled out all over your keyboard. Um, no, you know, it's such, like, a sweet time. We get flowers. We get chocolates. We, you know, hopefully couples. You're planning a little date out or a getaway. And, uh, and that's what it feels like, right? Like trending love. It's just sweet and it just smells nice and it tastes good. And, and so let's just dig a little under the surface. And let me just ask you a very pointed question. Why do you do most of what you do most of the time? Why do you do what you do? And if we were all to be really brutally honest, we do most of what we do for what we can get out of it. Yes, even the flowers and the date are laced with our own motivation. There's something we want in return. But now let's just put the Valentine's season and dates and flowers, put that aside. Why do you do most of what you do? I mean, why do you go to work? Why do you go to school? Why do you do the chores? Why do you earn a paycheck, right? And for most of us, it's out of obligation or responsibility. We think we have to. I mean, the truth is, it's not like the food is going to cook itself, it, it, you know, the paycheck's not going to just show up in our account on its own. I mean, the kids aren't going to get fed by themselves. The reality is most of us feel a certain amount of responsibility. Even when you go to school, you're not doing it because you're really intrinsically motivated to learn. You're doing it because somebody told you you have to. And at a very young age, they told you, if you don't learn, you're not going to get into a good college. And you're not going to get into a good college. I can get a good job. And you're going to just be a miserable person the whole rest of your life. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But the truth is, so we go through the motions. We have to. Most of what we do is because of a have to, not a want to. And have you ever discovered this little rule in life? If you do the right thing for the wrong reasons, it's the wrong thing. Follow me, right? So if, if my kids are doing the dishes, I say, sweetheart, you need to take care of the dishes today. So they clean off the table and I hear them while they're cleaning off the table going, he doesn't even know I have homework to do and I have to do this and daddy didn't, you know, like, and they're mumbling. And then I hear dishes banging. If you do the right thing for the wrong reasons, it's the wrong thing. And all I'm thinking is they need two more chores to do in order to learn this lesson. But then in a few moments later, Laura's saying, hey, can you take the baby and can you give him his bottle? And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. And I'm like, oh, and I'm like rocking him. Dude, just stick it. I'm trying to squeeze the milk in his mouth a little faster. Dude, just take the milk. And, uh, and if you do the right thing for the wrong reasons, it's the wrong thing. Some of you are like, you're having an epiphany moment. You're like, oh, all this time. You're like, you don't get any points for it. And, and y'all have to admit, you're doing it for points. You don't know what those points are going to get you. 
You don't know who's keeping track. Well, you're keeping track, right? But the truth is, there's some point system out there. And somewhere in ether space, somebody's tracking the points you get for doing chores or helping out or changing a tire. And somewhere it all should come back to you, right? And that's why we do what we do. Because eventually it's all going to balance out. Eventually I'm going to get something back. And in a city corrupted by the wrong kind of love, a trending love, because everyone thought that was normal. There were some serious problems. In the ancient city of Corinth, there was a really prominent Roman city, a city of economic power and wealth. So most people had the resources to do what they wanted when they wanted. They, could, they had enough resource to numb their pain with whatever pleasures they desired. It was a city known for its decadence and wild living. A city of about 200,000 people. It was a very multicultural city. And in the center of that city was the temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of erotic love. And so rather than getting into, into any explicit details, I'll just put it this way. It was a city filled with the experimentation and exploitation of people for sexual desires. People got what they wanted and took what they wanted to please their sexual interests, and they thought they were doing it in the name of worshiping Aphrodite. And so they turned their God into sex to meet their own desires and wishes. And when you have a city filled with that, when you have an entire region driven by that, everyone is looking out for how to please themselves. They're looking out for how they can use others to make them feel better, how they can abuse relationships to meet their own interests. And so the Apostle Paul, here's this guy who had a radical life change. He was a religious terrorist who one day on his way to kill Christians, he had a vision of Jesus. And in that moment, his life radically changed and he went from hating Christians and killing Christians to becoming a Christian. From that point on, he used his life and livelihood to tell people about Jesus, to start new churches across Asia and Europe. He went to the city of Corinth and he spent 18 months there telling people about Jesus and starting a church around AD 50. And after he spent about 18 months there, he had started a fledgling church and then he moved on to start another church. But after he moved on, he heard word about some trouble in the church in the city of Corinth because while you could take the people out of the city, you couldn't take the city out of the people and you could, you could take them, you could move Corinthian people into a church environment, but you couldn't take the Corinth out of the people. And so they still thought like Corinthians and they still acted like Corinthians. They still were exploiting each other. And so the apostle Paul wrote two letters to the church in Corinth. The first letter is called First Corinthians. Shockingly enough, the second one is called Second Corinthians in your Bible. And so we're, through this series, we're looking at a very small portion of Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. Now, before I get to 1 Corinthians 13, which is kind of the apex moment of his letter, this is kind of the pinnacle moment, um, it, we, we have to go back a little bit and look at 1 Corinthians 12. Now, you might wonder why. Okay, here's the deal. Here is a city with pervasive, selfish trending love where everyone's doing what they want for themselves. And in 1 Corinthians 12, the apostle Paul is making this challenge. He goes like this, you know what? You don't all exist for yourselves. You exist to work together to serve each other. And so he's making this powerful point in 1 Corinthians 12 that you all were created for a unique 
purpose. That's right, you're special and you're special, but not in a Valentine's kind of special way. In a God has made you unique and special for a purpose. And your greatest purpose is not to serve yourself, but to serve God by serving others. And so God put in you a unique DNA. He's given you gifts and abilities, skills, and an experience which allows you to bring something into the larger church that is unique and special. And when you serve others, you're serving God. And you've been given a unique work to do. And the point is your life isn't about yourself and serving your own selfish desires. It's about serving others in a selfless way. So 1 Corinthians 12, let's just look at verse 6. There are different kinds of working. Every one of you are unique and different and distinct, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. Now he's telling you what you are meant to do, not why you were meant to do it. But I started out by saying, why do you do what you do? He's telling you what you should be doing. And then he continues on to say, it's not just you following your purpose in life, but the fact that you find your greatest purpose when you're discovering your unique part in the larger whole of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 19 and 20. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but only one body. And his reason for this is, when he knew that the Corinthian church would be reading this, they'd be thinking to themselves, okay, well, I'm gonna be the most important part. I, I'm gonna be the, the beautiful eyes, or I'm gonna be the tongue that speaks the most powerfully, or I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna be the head on the shoulders. Everybody's gonna look at me and think I'm the best. And so he knew that if it's about you doing your work, you're gonna wanna do the, the most prominent work, the most visible work. You're gonna, you're gonna start posturing for position and competing with each other. And so he's trying to address this and say, no, 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 stop it. If you're doing the right thing for the wrong reason, it's worthless. It's not about competing and comparing yourselves with positions and influence. It's not about being the most visible. It's about simply doing your part within the larger whole. And so then he really drives this point home when he gets to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 29. But the point is this, a lot of us, when we're doing what we have to do, we start to wonder, why isn't anyone looking out for me? I mean, you come home from work after a long day, or maybe you've been home and you've been taking care of the kids, and then your spouse gets home and you're like, are you kidding me? Doesn't anybody just want to help me out for a moment? I mean, I've had a shower. I haven't even gotten to the bathroom in privacy all day. And you're like, Ugh. and I know this because I, I've heard this um, <laughs> at least once. And, and, there, and there's this moment when you go like, somebody take care of me. Somebody help me out for a moment. And Paul is going, wait, wait, wait. Wait, let's ask why we're doing what we're doing. And so 1 Corinthians 12 verse 29, as he concludes his thoughts about doing what you're supposed to do. He says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? So he goes, does everybody have the same position? Is everyone a stay-at-home mom? Is everyone a homeschooler? Is everyone a teacher in the classroom? Is everyone a church leader? Is everyone a community leader? Does everyone run a business? Does everyone have the same giftedness? Are you all just gonna get together and fight about who's doing the most significant work? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? He goes, are we gonna sit around and argue about who has what gifts from God? Is that really the point? He goes like this. 
Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and you have to wonder, what does he mean by this? Eagerly desire, there's something greater than doing what God created you to do? He goes, yeah, yet I will show you a more, a most excellent way. That's a good way to live, but it's not the most excellent way to live. There is a most excellent way to live, and it really gets under the surface because it's not living based on what you do. It's focusing on why you do it. And so the Apostle Paul continues, and, he, and this is where, you know, again, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing, he didn't put in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. This is a flow of thought, right? He's writing, and he's trying to communicate a point, and so we just jump right in. He'll like this. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If your words carried the power of heaven, if you had the most brilliant speaking capacity, if you were the most eloquent person on earth, but the every word you speak is not spoken in love, it's as if your words were shrill. It's as if somebody right now got on the drum set and started banging the cymbals while I'm speaking. It would not be a new sound. It would not be a novel sound. It would not be a helpful and meaningful sound. It would be obnoxious and rude. If I have the gift of prophecy, I can speak into the future. I can tell you what God is telling me and can fathom all mysteries. He's, he's using hyperbole here. He goes, I realize that no one on earth can fathom all mysteries, but imagine you could. Imagine you can make sense of every mystery on earth. Imagine you could crack the codes of science. Imagine you could explain all of the nuances of God and imagine all the things that confuse everyone else made sense to you. And you had all knowledge. You were omniscient like God himself. And if you had if had faith that could move mountains. Imagine you could just believe and when you prayed, literally uh, mountains moved. You could pray and miracles would happen. But you did not have love. All of your faith and all of your knowledge and all of your experience and all of those miracles would literally be worthless and empty if I give all I possess to the poor. If you wrote the biggest check, if you gave away, in this context, he's literally saying if you divided every single thing you owned, and you gave it away and you were left with nothing. And if you gave your physical body to be destroyed in the fire as a sacrifice to help others, but you did not have love, it would amount to nothing. If you used all of your gifts and all of your abilities, if you discovered what God had uniquely put you on earth for and you obeyed it, but it was not driven by love, he said it is worthless. And so what is the point? What am I driving at here? I want you to write this down, pull out your smartphone, pull out your tablet, get the program in your hand. I want you to write this down. If you're joining us online, you can type this right into the comment section. Um, I, and here's what I'm hoping. I, I don't want you just to write this down. The reason I want you to write it is because I want it to go from your hands to your head to your your heart, and I'm hoping that it becomes a life habit. Do you see that hand, head, heart, habit? Because if we miss this one, we missed it. It's this. Great works without great love are nothing. Great work without great love is nothing. It's worthless, it's empty. 
Look, here's the reality. We only give out of the overflow of what's flowing into us. What's in you comes out of you. What's coming out of you right now? When you do, what you do, why you do it is what's coming out of you. If what's coming out of you is anger, it's probably because you're holding on to hurt and resentment or rejection and bitterness. Because whatever fills, spills. If you have a really hard time forgiving others, it's probably because you're having a hard time forgiving yourself. Maybe you've been hurt, maybe you've done wrong and you're holding on to that. And as a result, it's hard for you to forgive others. If you find yourself constantly reacting the wrong way, it could be because there's pain and hurt filling your life. See, whatever is in me is gonna come out of me. If you're driven by lust that fills your heart, then you're gonna see other people as a means to fulfill your sexual desires. If you're driven by selfish desires that are filling your life, then you're gonna see others, every business opportunity, every transaction, every other person is a means to an end to meet your desires. Because whatever fills, spills. Whatever's in me is gonna come out of me. Look, don't be thinking right now about your spouse or your kids or your next door neighbor. This isn't about you critiquing them, going, oh, now I know what's in them. If you're right now judging someone else, it reveals what's in you. Did you catch that? Come on. This is about Patrick evaluating what's in Patrick. And you know what's really inside of us? There's this horrible sinful nature called, or this horrible spiritual nature called sin inside of me. Sin is what no one sees. You didn't even know you had it in you until someone told you it was there. Sin is a spiritual sickness inside of every one of us. We were born with it. And as a result, it caused us to run away from God toward our own selfishness. Sin metastasizes in selfish desires where I look out for my interests and my wants and I use and mistreat other people to meet my needs because I don't think anyone else will. Sin causes me to live guarded toward others. Sin causes me to to look out for satisfying my pleasures and my desires over others. And as a result, sin wrecks our relationship with God and heads us toward a life of ruin and into an eternity of eternal judgment. But God was willing to leave us on this life course of sin toward eternal ruin. And so God intervened in our story. And what's really cool is you see it right in Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. What's cool is this. 1 Corinthians 13 is all about how to love rightly. In fact, you could say 1 Corinthians is a love manual, but it's not some raunchy read. It's not about perverse, selfish love. It's not about some sensual book about how you can satisfy your own desires. It's a, lo- it's a book about how to love rightly in the way of God. And 1 Corinthians 13 is a very descriptive outline of the way to love in the, in the example of God. 1 Corinthians 12, he's setting it up by saying, we should do these right things And then he goes to, here's why you do them. But before he gets to 12, what you should do, and 13, why you should do it, he stops in chapter 11. In chapter 11, he talks about communion. So let's talk about it for a moment. Communion is the celebration of a church remembering Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 11, he said that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body 
broken for you. As often as you take this bread and you drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. And the point was this, that Jesus came to give his life for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. In Romans chapter five, verse eight, the author of Romans is saying, uh, God demonstrated his love in this way, that while we were of no use whatsoever to him, he gave his son in sacrificial death. You get the point? God gave when we could offer nothing. He did not give his life in order to get anything. Jesus came as the full expression of the love of God to give himself completely to us, whether we received him or not, whether we believed him, whether we loved him or not, he gave himself to us. For all who receive that love, all who believe in Jesus, he gives them forgiveness of sins and new life. When you believe in Jesus by faith, because he not only died, but he rose again from the dead, you are forgiven. You're given new and eternal life because God's spirit enters into your spirit. Now check this out. This is where too many of us miss this. When God's spirit enters into our spirit because we believe in Jesus by faith, yes, we're forgiven. Yes, we have the promise of heaven. Yes, we become truly alive. But the nature of God is transplanted into our spiritual being, which means we should become more like God. The love of Jesus is placed into our hearts. So don't miss this, this is the point, right? God must be the source of great love. Where are you going for your source? What are you tapping into? For too many of us, we're looking to a relationship. You're thinking that that person is gonna satisfy you. Some of you are frustrated in your marriage because you have an expectation that that person is gonna fill your life. They're gonna satisfy you, they're gonna complete you. Now look, I'm gonna talk about marriage in a couple weeks, but for right now, the point is too many people are going into relationships expecting something that can only rightly be expected of God, and that is that only God's love can be the source of true love. Others, you're looking to a, an addictive lifestyle or some life-controlling habit. Maybe you're using entertainment or your job to fill you. Blaise Pascal, the famous and world-renowned physicist and philosopher said that, the, that every man has a God-shaped vacuum in their heart that can only rightly be filled by Jesus Christ. Every one of us, when we put anything else but God into the void of our spiritual emptiness, we are gonna constantly go back looking for more and never be satisfied. God must be our source. But when God is our source, when you regularly tap into relationship with God through faith in Jesus, when your prayer life is not about some manufactured religious ceremony, but is a sincere conversation with a God who you know loves you and wants to talk with you and wants to hear you talk with him, then it becomes a refueling relationship. When reading the Bible is not about rules and laws and memorization, but reading the Bible becomes about discovering the love story of God to you, now you read it differently because it begins to fuel your life. Wow, I'm discovering who God truly is. I'm being refreshed by God. I'm being challenged by God. Love is filling me my life when your worship time is not about what you can get out of it, but about truly worshiping God and expressing your love to God. What I've discovered is that when I worship rightly and my whole goal in worship is to tell God that I love him, it's amazing how love fills my life. See, here's the deal. Only God can be the source of great love. 
When God is the source of great love, my motives are changed. And that's Paul's point. You can do the right thing for the wrong reasons, and it's wrong. But when love transforms your heart through the relationship with God as God's spirit is in your spirit and his love is alive inside of you, then your motives are changed. Therefore, it's not about what you're doing, but why you're doing it, right? I sound like every parent you've ever met, right? It's not the words, it's not what you said, it's the way you said it, right? It's not what you're doing, it's why you're doing it. It's not about whether you're going to work or not. Yes, go to work, but go to work for the right reasons. So let me, let me take this passage and I wanna reframe it for you, all right? Now, this is just my made up version. So don't, don't go telling me that I'm rewriting the Bible. I just want you to understand what Paul is saying because if he says, if you speak with the words of men and of angels, but don't have love, it's like a clanging symbol, then the converse is also true. If you can't put two words together, if you don't have the gift to speak well, if you stumble over your words, if you stutter when you try to speak, but the words you speak come from a place of love, your words are life-giving. Do you get it? Isn't that incredible? You, your words could, could barely be comprehensible. It may barely make sense, but if they're born from a place of love, they're gonna change someone's life. Check this out, right? He continues. If you, if you have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, meaning if you can't make sense of anything, if, if current events scare you to death and your mind can't make sense of your own world, let alone the world of other people, if you, don't, if, you don't, if you struggle to even get your GED and you're struggling to fight your way through school or you had to go back to school and you, you don't know anything and other people are so much smarter and better and more experienced than you, but you have love, Oh, you know more than you could possibly imagine. Your love outweighs your education. Your love outweighs your experience. Your love outweighs the gift of prophecy. Even if you can hear everything from God and tell everyone what God has to say, if it's not coming from a place of love, it's worthless. But even if when you pray, you don't feel like you're hearing God at all, but your motivation is God-like love, trust me, you are speaking the words of God. That's what Paul's saying. If if when you pray, and you, you have a hard time believing that God even blesses your food, let alone can move mountains. If your faith feels like it's the size of a grain of salt, I assure you, faith in your life that feels like it's empty, but laced with love can change the world around you. That's what Paul's saying. If you have very little to offer, I mean, Paul's saying if you give everything and you divide up everything you have and you give it to the poor and you even are willing to die and let your body be burned in the flames without love, well then, if you have very little to offer, if what you put in the offering or what you can offer your friends or neighbors is so minuscule, if you have such little time to offer that you barely feel like you're giving anything, but you're giving it from a place of love, trust me, that little gift is changing the world around you. Check this out. You can give without love, but you cannot love without giving. You can serve without love, but you cannot love without serving. Here is the point. This is where Paul is driving. 
This is, if we were to really capture it, great love changes small things into great things. Mother Teresa said it better than I ever will, so let me just read a quote from her. The needs are great, and none of us, including me, ever do great things. But we can, do, we can all do small things with great love, and together we can do something wonderful. Look, if Mother Teresa said that she didn't do anything great, she said, I just did a bunch of little things with great love. And somewhere along the line, those little things become something wonderful when it's driven by love. Then let me challenge you and I. Why you do what you do is more important than even what you're doing. Go to work driven by love from God. Love your coworkers, love your colleagues. When you're getting ready to, to give a quote for a contract or you're getting ready to interact with one of your employees or an employer, do it with love from God. When you're at school and students, when you're interacting with your classmates, when you're sitting in the lunch cafeteria and somebody's chucking food, you love them with the love of Jesus. Teachers, you love those kids with the love of Jesus. You interact with your neighbors with the love of Jesus. You're not looking out for your interests. You're not trying to be a resounding gong. Your words are laced with love. Your sacrifice comes from a place of love. Your generosity comes from a place of love. Your service comes from a place of love. And when it comes from a place of love, then it is, it is God's love working through you, right? God's love flowing in and overflowing. I heard a sermon, it rocked my perspective on the world around me was from a, a pastor in Africa named Stephen Simbiala. Uh, he was here in Hagerstown. He preached this message about love. And he said it, uh, he oversees a network of churches that have tens of thousands of people in Africa attending them. And he said, we've had moments when we've prayed for dead people and they came back to life. And I'm like, I don't know. That's just weird. He said, we pray for people with cancer and they instantly are healed. But then he said something that just shook me to the core. He said, if we prayed for someone who is dead and they came back to life, but then we didn't love them as a church, they would leave and they would go off walking away from God into a life of dead, empty living. He said, if we prayed for someone who had cancer and they were instantly healed, but then we did not love them in the way of God, they would go off and live a life of metastasized sin and end their life in destruction. And it would have been worthless. Do you, you get it? Did, I hope it's shocking you the way it shocks me. It's not about raising the dead. It's not about the gifts. It's not about signs and wonders and miracles. The truest mark of a Jesus follower is are you in love with Jesus and is Jesus' love showing through you? You wanna know how you know whether you are truly a Christian or not? Are you loving others in the way of Jesus? You, it doesn't matter if you can memorize more of the Bible. It doesn't matter if you're operating the gifts of God's spirit. It doesn't matter how much power you have or how much eloquence you have or how much you give or how much you serve. You can do all of that and not amount to anything in eternity. But a little bit of love covers and changes you and changes the world around you and impacts eternity. So now it's a moment of surrender where I say, God, I, I don't even know where to start. I think I should start by receiving your love. Man, let's all start there. So could I encourage you for a moment? Would you just close your eyes? Hey, you're joining us online. Would you, would you close your eyes? What do you need from God right now? Some of you, you've been going through your whole life empty. 
You've been filling that void with all kinds of relationships or addictive desires. You've been numbing it with entertainment. And right now you're going, wait, what am I doing? I just need the love of Jesus. And you receive that by repenting of your old way of living and allowing God's spirit into your spirit. Look, if you're in that place where you're ready to say yes to God's love and say yes through faith in Jesus Christ to this new life, I wanna speak to you for a moment. And if that's where you're at, can I encourage you? Whether you're joining us online, you're gonna let us know if you're with us present right here. Would you raise your hand high and say, yes, Patrick, that's where I'm at. I wanna begin this new life with the love of Jesus. I want Jesus' love to fill me and forgive me. If that's you, would you just raise your hand high? I wanna just give you that moment. Look, I don't want you to walk out of here empty. I don't want any of you to walk out of here feeling like you don't have anything to offer anyone else. I don't want you to walk out of here feeling love bankrupt. Anybody else, you wanna just raise your hand and say, yeah, that's me too. That's where I'm at. If you're online with us, you're just gonna indicate by putting the hand raised emoji up. For those of you that raise your hand in just a moment, I'm gonna pray with you. But for every one of you now, you can also respond. It's simply that saying, yes, I need to be refilled with the love of God. I need my motives to be transformed. It's not about just giving or serving or doing the right thing. I gotta do it for the right reasons. So would you be willing to open your heart to God's love right now? Jesus, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins. And for those that raise their hand, God, would you meet them in a powerful way? Would you let them know right now that you love them, that you forgive them, and that you give them new life? And Father, for every one of us, would you refresh us with that supernatural, reckless love of God where you would walk away from the crowd to chase after the individual. God, that you would run after each one of us with this reckless, abandoned love where you would give your life for us, that you would knock down the walls that separated us from you. Lord, right now we open our lives and we receive that supernatural God-like love so that we would do the right thing for the right reasons and it would be worth something that matters for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church located in Hagerstown, Maryland. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.